You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspective. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Um, let me introduce this week's guest. Uh, Sune Sorensen was good enough to come on the podcast and talk to us. Uh, Sune wears many hats. He's an advisory board member and an independent asset manager at BFI Capital. He is also the managing director at the Strategic Funds. Um, I also actually am a global macro advisor at the Strategic Funds. So if you're interested uh, in global macro or particularly in crypto, check out the Strategic Funds. A lot of interesting things going on there. Uh, And lastly, Sune is a partner at the Malmgren Strategic Institute. Um, Sune and I have known each other, have been friends now. Uh, for well over a couple of years. Uh, we bonded initially over our shared curiosity and love of geography and history and the big macro forces that really shape the world around us. Uh, Sune is a particularly knowledgeable and sharp thinker when it comes to how those forces are affecting the world of finance um, and investments. And we had a great conversation teasing out not just what's happening in geopolitics, but how these things are intersecting with finance at a macro level. So. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. As always, if you want to get in touch, anything about the podcast or Perch or anything else on your mind, email us at info at perchperspectives.com. Uh, oh, last but not least, uh, we recorded this podcast on Tuesday, June 1st. Uh, so I don't think too much crazy in the world is going to happen before then. But if anything does crazy, just keep in mind, uh, you're literally listening to history here as we recorded about a week or a week and a half ago. Okay. Without any further ado, take care, be good to each other, and let's talk to Sune. We just roll. Sune, uh, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while now, man, and you're finally here. It's good to have you. Jacob, my friend, a pleasure. Big fan of the program, long-time listener. Happy to be a voice on it uh, today. Um, I, we're just going to freestyle a little bit. I, ha- I didn't prepare as well as I, I normally prepare for podcasts. I probably should admit that, but you and I go back a ways, and I figured that uh, we could just cross-pollinate our, our mental energies and things would go well. I'm off to a great start there. Um, but listen, I, I wanted to start off with a relatively, well, it'll sound like a simple question, but it'll probably be more complex. But um, when you first introduced yourself to me, you always talked about yourself as a macro thinker. And I wanted to throw at you, uh, what is macro? When when listeners are, are listening to you talk, and we're going to talk a lot about macro and geopolitics and all these other things, what should they what should they take from you saying that you're somebody who focuses on the macro side of issues? Oh, good question. Then always good to clarify these terms because they mean different things to different people and within different industries. But so for me, macro is basically just that you come from, let's say, 10,000 feet at a subject matter. And the subject matter of choice for myself has been the world of investing for a couple of decades now. Um, so that tend to be looking at big major trends, uh, from a big picture perspective, trying to understand how they all potentially fit together, what pot- potential outcomes they may lead to, and then basically to drill down on those areas and try and develop investable ideas if I'm working on, on that side of the table or highlighting potential risks for, for other side of that uh, side of that work. Um, and again, if you're trying to understand more uh, how societies are interacting more maybe in, in a political sense, again, same kind of perspective, trying to understand it from a top-down perspective as opposed to getting into the nitty-gritty, the granular to start with. So I started a higher perspective. So that for me is what macro really indicates when I, when I use that word. 
do you feel like macro has been sort of the black sheep of the investment world for a long time and it's coming back into vogue? Or do you feel like there's always been a niche of people who, who focused on these top-down points of views um, and were able to generate alpha and generate returns for their investors based on those insights? Yeah, so the financial industry loves to kind of put labels on things and use terms for, for very specific narrow concepts. And again, the, the term macro has been associated with a type of investing that has not been particularly well performing or popular for, let's say, the last couple of decades. Though, again, for me, that's a bit of an oxymoron in the sense that, you know, for me, macro means big picture and you can't really look at any particular investment, even if you go granular, whether you go to venture capital or a specific industry, it obviously it um, it is within a larger context and therefore you got to understand the larger context so again back to kind of the complexity of the question that you started with you know i think that macro applies to all types of investing and therefore you can't just sort of pin it on one particular trend but i would say that obviously from the investment style related to macro you would think about people like Druckenmüller, soros you know, where you're looking at big schisms in things like currency markets or commodity markets or, you know, major kind of global events. And again, we certainly have had plenty of those. It's just not been so pronounced in investable markets, certainly not in the last couple of decades since we've had, um, so we say, injections of liquidity at regular intervals that are more driven by a central bank um, set of priorities than maybe just the free flow of markets between uh, nations or regions. Um, so how to express a macro investment theme has maybe been less uh, less obvious to some, but I do think that, you know, whether you go back to 2008 and seven, I certainly see that as, as macro investing around that. While obviously some people are making money in, you know, very exoteric areas or very narrow niche areas, like let's say mortgage-backed securities or what has been, but again, the context was a larger one. Um, so for me, macro investing is what I've been doing for two decades, if you ask me. I'm not sure it fits within that particular category that people want to kind of use for for categorizing different styles of investing. Mm. Do you feel like, um, well, specifically your macro perspective, has it gotten easier or harder in the last 20 or 30 years as the digital age has advanced um, and as knowledge and information seems to be democratized and there's a lot more of it than there used to be? It used to be, I think you had a relatively small number of insights that you'd be generating a thesis from. So does, does the more information and the more people are on networks help when you're trying to generate macro insights? Does it hurt or is it just different? Well, I think it's always hard because you're trying to look into the future. I don't think anyone who says that is easy is in maybe the best state of mind. Um, so always difficult, um, as you highlight, obviously, probably a lot more noise than there was a while back in terms of the inputs or where you can kind of source data, insights, ideas. Um, so with that comes a specific challenge to it. Um, I don't I wouldn't say it's, you know, I would stick to the, you know, I would stick to the to the answer that, you know, it has always been difficult. And I think it will always be difficult. I think you can easily get dragged more easily get dragged into a lot of noise and uh, then maybe you could a while back but on the flip side of that you do also on the positive have access to information globally uh, and it's then up to you to kind of take that data or information and distill it into actual insights and try and make a meaning of it that ideally can inform you or your opinions and, and how you go about positioning transactions in, in terms of investing for example i would also say it's a personal journey so a lot of the time when you're young and you start out in something you think that is very simple you take the complex and just distill it very easily into something and you think you figured it all out and then life has a habit of kind of coming back and teaching you that you know very little um, and then you start again with a, maybe another layer of humility and 
I'm certainly gone through that journey. So I would probably say that maybe two decades ago, I probably thought it was a lot easier, but maybe that was just the hoppers of youth. And, you know, maybe now I'm a bit more uh, long in the tooth and a few more gray hairs. Um, so I'll probably come to the realization that trying to figure out what's going on in the world, you know, in any time scale outwards, uh, forward, uh, is difficult. And, you know, that should be, there should be a certain level of margin for error built into anything that you're trying to do. And, Humility is probably uh, a good tool to bring with you on that journey. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said that better myself. Um, you mentioned a little bit about this, so I, I just want to ask about your background for a, a few moments. And I, I think, I think maybe, although you'll correct me if I'm wrong, do you feel like? So I should say to the listeners. So uh, you know, Sune and I, through the magic of of the digital age, are talking right now and recording this podcast. But I'm in New Orleans; he's in Switzerland. Um, do Do you feel like your living in Switzerland gives you a unique point of view from that perspective, because you're sort of at the center of things happening in Europe, but it's not quite Europe because you have that strange relationship with the EU. You get to sit on lots of different things without being parts of them. There's obviously a long history of political neutrality and democracy in Switzerland that is also fascinating. So I just wonder, do you feel like your environment allows you to see things that others don't? Does it uh, influence your worldview in ways that are subtle that people may not pick on? How, how does that affect how you're seeing the world? That's a, that's a good one. Um, so number one, uh, to clarify, I'm obviously not Swiss. So I'm, I come from the, uh, the windswept rainy plains of Northern Europe, uh, Denmark, very flat, uh, not like Switzerland. Uh, but when I was so to your question, you know, I've traveled. So when I was 18, I moved away from, from those windswept plains and, and took me around the world in some, some different locations. Uh, I've lived around the place. And I would say that informs my view more than any particular one of those places. Mm. But each of them has obviously helped shape my understanding of that part of the world and the perspective from that space. And maybe in itself, that gives you maybe an understanding that you need to try and see the world through different people's eyes and from different positions around the the, the map, so to speak, and, and that, that can help inform your understanding of, of you know, global trends, for example. To Switzerland, so you, you, it's a great point. And, you know, I've been fascinated by Switzerland for well over a decade now and ended up moving here re more recently in a couple of years ago. Um, but I've always had a connection to the place in the certainly last decade in terms of the work I do. Um, there is something about the centrality, uh, landlocked country up in the mountains. So there's a natural kind of um, mountain people mentality, a sense of independence. Um, there is definitely a, you know, when you want to be at 10,000 feet, you are literally uh, certainly uh, far above sea level. So you're naturally getting that kind of look upon the world from here. Obviously, well documented that for you know century plus, you've had a global financial industry here, which has been built more about what I would call macro investing or global investing, kind of very pragmatic, long-term perspective, which is kind of what attracted me to the place from a work perspective initially, uh, was really that approach to investing where you're kind of taking a long-term view and you're trying to understand globally what's going on because the space is obviously quite small. So you generally have an kind of an, uh, an interesting mix of an outlooking mentality to the world, but also quite an insular mountain type kind of mentality to your regional area. Um, and I think that is an interesting dynamics that, you know, I read about it, I followed it, but until you live here, it, you don't really get the sense of it. I'm lucky to say I have good Swiss friends uh, who are from here. And again, they obviously have been able to, to show me some of their perspectives on, on the place and on the world in general. How, um, so for, for listeners who don't know, we're recording this uh, June 1st. This podcast will come out in a week, week and a half or so, uh, but I don't think anything crazy is going to happen in the meantime. But I feel like one of the big 
big headlines of the last week is the EU and Switzerland breaking off um, talks about updating the various treaties that define their relationship. The EU obviously wants a more comprehensive agreement um, that is representative of current times rather than, I think, what, going back to 1972 is the first treaty that legislates it. And I mean, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, we, we talked about Brexit. God, we're still talking about Brexit for how long, but I feel like the Swiss issue has gone under the radar. And even I, I read something today about the Swiss hoarding medical devices because they're worried about some agreement um, lapsing that's not going to allow them to export import medical devices in the EU supply chain. But um, I don't want to get too far into that, but I just want to ask, how does that affect you? Does it affect you? I mean, obviously, um, London and the UK in general are facing huge headwinds because they've had their own changes and problems in their relationships with the rest of Europe and with the with the rest of Brussels. Do you feel like Switzerland is on that path? And does that affect um, that position that you have there at the center of everything? Does it isolate the Swiss in their mountain fortress? Or are you not so worried about that? I'm not so worried about that. So, um, you know, I think it's an interesting bigger picture that maybe can, we can broaden out and have a general conversation about in terms of governance, in terms of the reality of, of individuals. So again, from having traveled around the world, and this is not, I don't have the answers to it, but I ponder it often, is that we have this digital reality, which is very global in nature, hence our conversation from New Orleans to, uh, to Switzerland today. Um, so we, most people, certainly in the West, tend to live in a global world uh, in many ways, whether it's our cultural aspects, whether it's our, you know, friends and contacts and our businesses. Um, but we're also very regional, regional in, in the sense of where we live. So again, most people will have a deep interest maybe in their local sports team, their schools, if they're children, um, if they have a business that is an actual retail type business, their local community in that sense. And they may be active in, in a number of ways regionally, but what is maybe starting to disappear a little bit, and this is where the, the conflict maybe between the kind of analog governance systems that we have are built around the nation states, and obviously in Europe, you're dialing back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, whereas in other parts of the world, maybe those borders are more recent uh, on, that, on that map or the lines on the map. Um, but I do think that there is a general global situation that I think will play out over the next couple of decades, specifically with the younger generations who are certainly that global digital reality is more true for them than it is for me. Um, so I've had children from the ages of seven till 16. So I see their world a little bit through their eyes. And they are certainly, you know, how much the nation state is of importance to them beyond some certain aspects. And they're much more regional in terms of what they're doing. There. And then they have a global outlook, I think. And I think when you look at Switzerland, Switzerland, while obviously geographically at the center of Europe, most exports and business does have relations to Europe. Um, there's some reliance, obviously, on Europe for imports on some aspects, but it is a very global, innovative economy that has, you know, a footprint around the world. It's kind of like a uh, a tiny little place that really outpunches it, its size in terms of its global presence, in terms of the financial industry, in terms of the types of exports that it has, which is generally high-level innovation type manufacturing. Um, obviously, on the flip side, tourism inwards. So there is kind of a a link to the world that maybe goes beyond the, the scale of, of the geography here. Um, I think when you look a little bit at Swiss history, and this maybe comes down to the European question that you asked me initially, um, you know, Switzerland is a mountainous country. It's not an easy place to have lived when you try and think, when you drive around this place, and from someone who grew up in a relatively flat part of the world, you can't help but be kind of be in awe of the mountains uh, as you travel through it. When you drive around, or whether you're on the great trains here, you're seeing how much they basically had to adapt into this natural habitat to build this very advanced nation 
in a beautiful but hard place to kind of build a society at scale, certainly. So when I speak with my children about what we see out the window on the train, um, it is very much about, you know, how you can make the most out of, of little, how you can take adversity and turn it into a strength. So, you know, if you look at agriculture here, it's not naturally to think that this would be a place that would be great to have a lot of cows and do dairy. Um, but again, if you turn that milk into very high-end chocolate, suddenly you got a profit margin that you can compete in the world for. You basically create a product by taking your adversity and turning it into something that, that gives you a better business than maybe you would have if you just had huge flat lands to have all your cows running around on. And I think that goes through everything here. So again, if you don't have you know billions of people in your population, you're probably not going to out-manufacture anyone in, in terms of scale. But then again, if you highly educate those people and build a system that continue, that basically focuses on continuous innovation and high level of education, then you can basically have things like a high level pharmaceutical industry. You can have high level engineering. And I think there's a footprint in that that is very Swiss and that they really value. So to your question about the European Union, I don't think there's these are very pragmatic people. I think they see themselves as European to some degree, and they certainly understand the business of Europe and wanting to be a part of it. But I do think that they, their concerns at the core are really about whether they can have the level of governance, because again, Switzerland is unique in many ways in terms of governance. It is a direct democracy. So that means that people here, they vote in their local regional canton. So even within this tiny country, there are essentially all these tiny little countries that are all kind of agreed on some big picture stuff they do together. Mm. And then please leave us alone to do what we need to do regionally. And they stand very strongly on that. And again, when you look at the European Union, as someone who's from the European uh, Brotherhood, if you like, and from the outside in and coming to visit here, I could perhaps wish that the European Union would take some of the lessons applied here and use them more broadly, because I do believe that we need to get down to a regional granular kind of self-governance within the European Union, but that we also need to leverage the scale for those matters where it actually uh, is important, whether that's defense or just the global footprint of some things like business, for example. While, you know, some of the things that we are, some of the things in the, within the European Union that I would probably frustrate a Swiss person to sit and look at and think, I don't want to be part of that is maybe where we are making centralized decisions about what is truly regional matters, as opposed to the other way around. That's a fascinating point. And this is why we freestyle, Sune. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I was thinking about um, Hungary this morning when I was reading about all the Swiss EU stuff, because in some ways, it seems to me that the EU should be harder on Hungary than it should be on Switzerland, because Hungary is is directly assaulting some of the legitimacy and I think the authority of Brussels, whether right or wrong. Let's we're not going to go into that here. It's just I think Hungary really is challenging the EU, and in some ways calling the EU's bluff, saying you don't have the power to enforce this. We don't want whatever directives are coming out of Brussels, so we're going to do our own thing, and that's how it's going forward. Um, and the EU. I think led by Germany for various historical reasons and cultural reasons, doesn't want to come down on hard, doesn't want to come down hard on Hungary or Poland or some of these other states on the periphery, wants to build the happy European brotherhood that you alluded to. But that also makes the EU kind of weak and, un, and unable to assert itself. Whereas you just talked about how Switzerland is able to combine these things, is able to have a coherent national identity and policy, and yet still have a very strong sense of regional and even local um, identity and governance. So, I mean, what what things, if, if I was von der Leyen or if I was one of the you know European Commission folks just sitting here and talking to you, what, what are one or two key lessons that you would tell them that they absolutely should learn from Switzerland that maybe they haven't learned if they want the EU to go forward in this digital era that you talked about? 
well, so one, I would say direct democracy is probably something they need to try and build into the system. Um, and by that, I mean, they would have to challenge the idea that we have regional setups and then we have national setups and then we have European setups. And I think, obviously, as currently constructed, you're getting that friction where the national governments, you know, outside of maybe Germany and France, you know, are not in reality, and you can highlight things like Hungary, but that often it's the politics, it's using the noise around being, you know, challenging Europe for, for basically means at home to stay in power or to, to explain away, uh, you know, faults at a, at a national level, yeah. I think that's something that you would need to overcome, and that means that somehow, probably over a decade and decade and a half, we have to get to a regional and a European sense of a community, yeah as opposed to some of these uh, constructs. And even within Europe for historic matters, we probably don't have time for today, but just look at like things like Scotland or Catalonia, for example. Mm. You know, you're having very powerful economic regions with hundreds of years of history, but because of some nation state things that went on three or 400 years ago, you literally have a break on what I would say is the true path for Europe if it's going to be successful going forward, because you're having to consider all these different levels of, of historic lots of it historical in, in context and and that you can't really deal with this and i think until we, we kind of clear some of that out it's very difficult to say here's the plan to let's say a place like switzerland or oh, i do think want to be part of, uh, of this this bigger this bigger project but if you can't come and say to them look we understand that right now we're working through some difficult issues as a community within and within some of these nation states and here's our path forward to basically becoming a giant Switzerland in the sense where there can be representation at local level uh, about things that should be handled locally while we can still leverage the bigger for bigger things. It's kind of hard to sell that right now in the current. So if you're one delay, difficult conversation right now to say, here's our, here's our blueprint to how we get there and you should come and join. Um, and I think that is where I'm watching Europe and, and my question mark is really, do they find a path to something that gradually takes us there? Or do we continue this sort of... Uh, you know, two step forward, one step backward kind of uh, path. Well, what do you think is the answer? I'm not sure there's a bigger macro investment question right now. I mean, maybe China is, is up there, but I, I think the future of the EU is probably, at least from my perspective, the biggest geopolitical and macro question of the decade ahead, whether the EU really can pivot and do what you're talking about there or whether it's bound to fracture apart. So um, do, you, do you have a position on that? And to take it one step further, how, how do you start to begin thinking about um, how to invest around whatever your thesis is there or around the uncertainty that you have there? My, you know, so I'm, you know, I know the conversation is very popular this year, break apart and, and all these things. I don't really think that's maybe that interesting. I don't actually think that happens because geographically it cannot. So even people say Brexit, well, you know, Great Britain has not been dragged closer to the American uh, landmass. It's still sitting not so far from there. I lived 11 years in the UK. I have family and friends there. And, you know, they're certainly part of the European uh, geography and culture and reality in many ways. So it's just whether what kind of governance system is there on this landmass, if you want, what is superimposed upon it, and what essentially is an organic outgrowth of how these hundreds and hundreds of years of collective business, cultural awareness, um, exchanging of ideas and movement of people, how that, what shape that it takes place under. So maybe from an investment perspective, I'm not really sure that it's that interesting to sit and figure out whether it's going to break up or not, because I don't think it will. I think it'll be a gradual, either it'll be very slow moving as a, as a collective and it'll be suboptimal path forward, um, or they will figure it out and it could be that they could be a larger part of the world um, community in some ways. 
Um, but I think from an investment perspective, I think it's very important to forget about that and just look at what is actually going on on this continent. And I think I'm a long-term investor in the place. Um, we feel that there's great companies, so whether it's here in Switzerland, in the engineering space, um, there's a highly educated population that is very wealthy comparative to the rest of the world. Um, demographically, they're getting older, but that's not necessarily such a problem in the world we live in today. And there is some very interesting smaller nations, I would say. So I'm not maybe so interested in, in France or, or some of the bigger places. But if you look at a place like Estonia, whether it's on governance or whether it's a place like the Netherlands or Switzerland, which I mentioned, which have really high level engineering, some of the Scandinavian countries, great innovation in these places. And where it maybe differs from the US, besides market valuations currently, so that's in itself an interesting area. Um, is maybe that there is a different culture around business, which has been more of a long-term one. So again, mm. in the US, you have a wonderful dynamic system that is more based around equity and equity holder mentality or a shareholder mentality. Uh, most of the companies are financed that way to some degree, whereas in Europe, you're taking generally a longer-term view. So it's more bank lending, it's more bond market, it's more uh, less leverage um, and generally kind of a, a slower, but uh, sometimes more uh, resilient uh, format of business. And again, you can probably find good good in both, which I certainly see. Um, so for me, Europe is a constant area of innovation and investing. And you know, it doesn't mean I don't look at Asia or the North American space. Uh, certainly not. It's the idea is to look globally and express your ideas where they can best be deployed. Yeah, I feel like one of your, like one of the themes you constantly return to is find innovation, and around innovation, you will find significant opportunities. Um, touching on that and about something you said earlier, we were talking about sort of the global outlook of, of Switzerland in particular, but in general, I wanted to zoom out and ask you, um, you know, what your thoughts are right now on where globalization is trending. Um, because on the one hand, we're all more connected than we ever were before. And then on the other hand, it does seem like there, there is this slow emergence of regional blocks that maybe are going to be exclusive from each other. And you have a lot of nation states. I would say interfering in the in the course of everyday commerce for national security concerns, political concerns, really using these things um, to legitimize themselves at home, and that's true in the democracies. It's true in authoritarian countries like Russia and China as well. Um, so, do you feel like we're moving towards a more globalized world? Do you feel like we're actually breaking apart, or both things happening at once? How how do you tackle globalization going forward, especially after the pandemic? Um, so, again, certainly, if you look at, let's say, the last 100 years, you've certainly had an expansion of, of so globalization, again, complex uh, term that maybe needs to be broken down a little bit. So people normally, in current context, globalization is all about good trade and, you know, US-China. Uh, for me, globalization is much bigger than that. So it is obviously trade of goods, services. Uh, it's a flow of data, so the digital reality we discussed. Um, it is at the very kind of fundamental level, and historically, it is more of an exchange of ideas and people moving around, uh, in my view. So if you're taking those different uh, and financial matters, obviously, so then you got financial flows, which should not be uh, underestimated either. Yeah. So when you look at that, I think certainly in terms of goods, I think there is a trend towards wanting to bring manufacturing back home, probably automated more. And there is some logical longer term trends around that one being demographic one being the fact that we for a while had this great asian factory that is now getting older and more expensive to use so that maybe it makes sense to have things closer to home there's a wish for resiliency in the system um so i can see that trend but i don't think that means the end of globalization because i think maybe on the other fronts whether it's the flow of data even though that has some constraints to it currently um but even things like ideas flowing back and forth uh, even cultural aspects 
I actually see that being quite uh, fast-tracked and expanding. So I think there may be some pullback, which I think maybe we've seen the pendulum swing a little far out to some sides where we got out to a place where maybe it wasn't sustainable. Um, so maybe on, on, for example, goods. I think there's also just from this whole context of climate risk and thinking about how we build things better. Um, I think there's maybe a thinking that, you know, uh, going to Brazil and digging up a lot of stuff out of the ground, putting it on a boat and sailing it half, you know, all the way to Asia and then making something out of it and then putting that onto a container and then shipping that off to you, you down in New Orleans so that you can drive around some, some wonderful car. Um, that model may not make a whole lot of sense if you're thinking about sustainability and just thinking about best practices. And so there's some things there, I think, that underlies that, that, again, makes it very sensible to to look locally. The idea that we are suddenly shutting down into these different blocks, I just don't really see that beyond a lot of the social media and, and maybe some politics here and there. When you go and look at and speak to someone who runs a business, even if it's a small to mid-sized business, and ask him whether that he has a global reality around him, he will say, yes, if you speak to my school kids about what they're interested in, well, they will be into K-pop or they will be into the NBA or they will be into some other obscure thing that I haven't heard about because I'm not quite as hip anymore. Um, so again, ideas, cultural aspects, uh, data flows. And even if you look at financial flows, obviously after the 2007 crisis, there was a tendency from regulators to kind of say, look, financial industry, you've been bad. Now you stay at home, we can keep an eye on you. And, and that may have happened. But if you look at terms of investing, you know, investing of capital is still flowing around the world. If you look at some of the biggest companies in the world today, whether that you are many of them American, but again, they're American by where they maybe were founded, but in the sense of their business, whether that's Nike or Apple or any of these guys, you know, they're globally businesses and they live very much in a global economy. And again, to your point, are we pulling back from that? Well, I think there's very powerful interest, economic and otherwise, that have no interest in that happening. And I think even if you do break it down into the consumer level, I'm not really sure we are that interested in in really going away from that. There's some things that on a political post that looks good that we can talk about. Um, but I think the reality of the system that is here, um, we don't really want to be changing that too much. Yeah, I just I just want to emphasize that point because I think it's incredibly important. And um, it's the, the whole thing about fracturing into different blocks or globalization taking over. Those are both nice pithy headlines that can fit, you know, in a 200 word summary of an article that has to go on the front page of a newspaper. But to your point, when you actually pull back the onion, it's much more complicated. There are forces that are pushing for globalization. There are forces that are against globalization. There are companies in the world that have more in common with other than they necessarily do with their governments. Um, great example of this is Huawei in China and say Ericsson in Sweden. I would say Ericsson and Huawei probably have more in common in terms of their long-term interests, certainly than Sweden and China do, but even more so than Ericsson and Sweden do together and Huawei and China do together. There's their ecosystems built up. And the deeper story there, I think, is the way that politics has shifted. I, I call it in the last 10 years. It's, it's really accelerated since the pandemic. But you've got political tropes that are emerging where folks are trying to take all of those global interests or the economic interests and use them for their own political point of view, to sell newspapers. I think that's reflected in the global media landscape right now. All of that is happening. And it's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, um, because I think it's important to have these sorts of complicated conversations. And for the listeners who are willing to you know, take an hour of their time and actually listen to two people talk about the complexities rather than thinking you're going to get one answer come out of it. Um, I just think that's that's really important going forward. 
Uh, you raised some good points there. So, you know, it's interesting when people, you get these questions like, you know, is this good for the US or is it good for China? Is it good for Switzerland? You know, that's, you can't really address it like that because what, what, what in your mind, what is the US, for example? Is the US big global businesses that are there? Is it uh, the guy living in Iowa or is it the guy living in New York City? Uh, are we talking of which industry, you know, which, which side of the aisle? You know, so all of these things will have different implications. So when you, when you again, just putting that label of this nation state onto it, it doesn't really project what is actually below that surface. And again, there can be more, it is always much more complex than that. And when you start digging into it like that, you start realizing that some things are good for certain parts of this, uh, whether it's an industry or a grouping geographically. Um, you know, it just is the change will be happening. I think, again, how you position politically around that is interesting. I think it brings maybe um, a bigger interesting aspect that I see uh, now as a trend. And I think this is one to definitely watch and I see it as a, as a risk, which is basically, you know, anyone who studies history for over any, let's say, a period of time, and I'm not talking about, you know, hundreds of hours spent, but just generally, you know, if you have a curiosity about history, I think you realize that the foundations of what the human experiment has kind of taught us is that there's some foundational pieces to what is a successful, prosperous society. Forget about the nation state level. One of them is democracy in its true form, the idea that you have a say. I think the rule of law versus the rule of man has mm. proven inherently to be a better for the mass of the people on whatever that geography is. And then I think capitalism and free markets in its true sense has been part of why we are prosperous today. I think those are our foundations. But if you look today, you know, each of those are kind of like a cornerstone. It's nice to go and look at it and say, okay, I, I understand the basic principles of that. But it has always then been a kind of an experiment on top of that. How do you build a system, a conduit that means, that spreads this into the everyday life of every person in this society? Yeah? And that's maybe where we've had some real strength, but we're having some issues now. So I think what, in terms of governance, I think we drifted away from the best possible systems to express these cornerstones into the average person's outcomes of, of their life, yeah, and in the West, certainly, okay? So now you're seeing politics, you're seeing individuals blaming these cornerstones for why the outcomes are not as optimal as they would want them to be, mm. where maybe what is really needed is a reassessment of the systems that are expressing these cornerstones into the everyday life outcome of people, and until we can have a conversation about those, so whether it's amendments to some of these rules that we built over the last three, four hundred years on, upon these cornerstones, until we can have actual conversations about that in a, in a pragmatic way, saying, look, maybe 200 years ago, this was a great way to express this particular democracy concept. But maybe the way we do voting right now does not really allow um, for the best possible way for a citizen to participate in the society. And maybe we need to use some technology for that. And maybe we need to update that. Maybe there are some things around how capitalism works. Maybe we drifted into something called crony capitalism, yeah? Where blaming the idea of, of, of trade and free markets upon the financial outcomes that we're seeing today, I think is probably false. Um, so again, there we might need to go back and look at the system. Maybe some of these stakeholders of these systems need to look at themselves and say, yes, I have benefited and I've taken that position to a level of almost monopoly, if not monopoly. And maybe if I want this system to continue to be there beyond myself, then I'm going to need to address maybe some of the wrongs that has come. So again, when we, big, when we look at um, industry, that's been a debasement, I think, of, the, of, of, of values and of culture where we become shareholder focused. So we chase price instead of building value. 
Mm. I think there has been a shift, uh, certainly in North American business a lot, but also you know in other parts of the world, from focusing on engineering to financial engineering. So it's not really so much about what the pro- what the company does anymore. It's really about what the share price does, and it's all very short-term thinking versus long-term uh, thinking. And I think these are things that we're going to have to try and come to some kind of. We have to come through that. I think there is a schism right now, and I think the next decade will be quite telling in the West whether we find a way to navigate this onto something better or whether we start tearing the very fabric that basically got us to where we are today. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, I mean, you you called out democracy, the rule of law, and, and, and free markets as the sort of three cornerstones of prosperous and, and peaceful society. But the, the dynamic that you're pointing out here, I think, creates... A sort of negative feedback loop in that first pillar, which is democracy. Because if you get this short-term thinking and if you get stakeholders taking advantage or crony capitalism um, asserting itself in the system, eventually the democracy component will rebel. And it will rebel at the ballot box through you know, electing populist figures who don't care about democracy in the first place. Uh, it will rebel in the form of authoritarians getting legitimacy and being able to rule as dictators in whatever countries they're, they're ruling in. Um, and I know that this is one of the things I would call this one of the risks that you're probably focusing most on in terms of your investment horizon going forward, how that push and pull and how democracy is is probably going to affect things. Do you want to go a little bit more into that and some of the some of the things you're up to on trying to manage those risks for clients? Sure. So I think there's in all those three, there's a level of trust and a level of, of commitment to to the whole by the individual. And if you start tearing away at that trust, it's quite a delicate flower. So once it's broken, it's really difficult to put back together. And that's maybe where I see the risk. So again, if we start tearing at free, uh, free markets and business, which I think we have had financial repression back to the central bankers. So while I understand their mandate and what they're trying to do, I do think that maybe they're doing themselves a disservice longer term or the societies they serve. Um, so that's one, uh, one area of risk. I do think within business, we have to get back to in the West, certainly actually making and manufacturing things and, and become engineering uh, geniuses again, as opposed to financial engineering geniuses. Um, I do think in terms of our democracy, I think governance has to move with the time. So if you look at the digital reality that we talked about before, in pretty much every segment of your life, it is pretty prevailing now that we've taken some of the best applications of technology, some for the better, some for the worse, and some we're still kind of figuring out how to use properly. Um, but some of the areas we're not doing it is in terms of government uh, and, and the kind of governance structure. And I think that has to kind of catch up to this. Again, there's places where this is happening. So if you look at a place like Estonia, uh, I've been watching that place. They have this e-government, uh, very advanced in terms of how you can use it. I think the European Union is pushing in this direction now. Uh, you can see it here in Switzerland. You can see it in, in some places smaller generally, like let's say Singapore, some other places where very successfully um, you created this, this framework where you can actually govern at a lot lower cost. You can have much more of an interaction um, between the stakeholders of a society. Uh, it can obviously also, just like any other thing, technology is a tool, so it can be used for good and for bad. It can be the hammer that builds the house, or it can be the hammer that destroys the house. It depends kind of on the hands and the motivations of the one using it. Um, but generally speaking, technology is what's led us to, to having longer and better lives and, and all the prosperity we see today. So generally, we figure out how to use it uh, in the right way. So to the question of how to position investment-wise, you know, it's pretty clear to me that um, in the West, certainly, U.S. specifically, we have some major challenges at all these three levels. I think the historic lesson is probably that uh, more debt, more fiscal spending, a lot of ma- a lot of that probably malinvested, but some of it ideally falls into the right pockets of industry. 
um, and, and they come out the other side and build the next paradigm. And that's obviously what we're going to look for. Uh, I think in the meantime, you would be concerned about inflation, debasement of currency, because again, uh, as a politician, uh, it's kind of hard to say we're cutting back. It's easier to say we're expanding uh, fiscal measures. And once they're in place, then you got to do more and more of it. So then you can't really default on your currency. You don't need to if you're you know, European Union or United States and not Argentina. Um, so that probably means that you try and boil the frog as slowly as possible. Um, and that means inflation is a real risk. So again, that's a risk to manage. It's also an opportunity on the other side. So to specific investment type things. Certainly, I like real assets. So again, goes kind of with the Swiss mentality in some ways. Um, so I'm looking for things that have... Um, Permanence. I'm looking for things that will um, that will probably benefit from from that type of uh, development. Um, I think on the on the other side of it, and that maybe brings us to the other side of it. If you're looking again a decade out, I want to be in the innovation, the spaces of real innovation in core economic sectors. And right now, I think we are sitting at a very interesting space where you're seeing, I think, how we produce things will be changing dramatically. So. Uh, I've done some work on additive manufacturing, material sciences, uh, automation. I think that's a really interesting um, kind of uh, connection of, of all these uh, layers of innovation that comes together and creates something much bigger than any of the parts, um, which is one of those kind of thrusts that you really want to look at from an investment perspective. I think there's areas like our energy transition, um, our transportation transition. And I think, again, there's some demographic areas you can look at. And I think, again, there's some areas like, let's say, agriculture, freshwater related, obviously, um, which I also think is very much in need of innovation. And again, historically, if you can align yourself with the individuals or companies that are finding the solutions to some of these bottlenecks slash barriers, um, then that generally turns out well for you if you have the time horizon. And again, I think with the, the kind of market valuation levels we are currently, you're going to be buying at pretty high prices. yeah. So if you're going to do that, you want to try and find companies that are basically going to be able to become much bigger than they are today in terms of the revenue they can create for themselves and, and their shareholders. Mm. So again, that tends to be very innovative companies that maybe today is doing something narrowly, but then it has a much broader application in, in a decade out. And therefore, I can afford to pay the price that they, they charge me today to buy a share of their company um, so that I may be part of that much bigger uh, opportunity set that they have in the future. So yeah. real assets and innovation. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I wanted to also give you a chance. So where does crypto fall in this thing? And listeners, if you missed our episode on on the Crypto 101 course, it's a couple episodes ago. So maybe go back and listen to it if you are if you need to refresh yourself on crypto. But by the way, it's amazing how many people, it, it's, it's strange. I would say like 10 to 20% of people that I talk to these days, obsessed with crypto, trading crypto, all they want to talk about is crypto. And then there's another, you know, 70% or so who are just like, yeah, this is a fraud. It's all terrible. This is the decline of Western civilization. I mean, literally, these are the things people are saying. And, and there's a very small 5% in between that don't know what to make of it. We're trying to talk to those 5%. And I would count myself in those 5% as well. So um, I know you're doing some exciting stuff in the crypto space via strategic funds. So just talk to us a little bit about whether crypto is a real asset. Is it innovation? Is it both? And, and how are you attacking that investment opportunity or risk. Yeah, so very interesting. Again, number one, I would encourage people to go and listen to that uh, part that you you referenced. I listened to it; I thought it was excellent. Um, so, the um, 
Yeah, so crypto for me is kind of like a fintech 2.0 place. So I've been for the last two decades, we've had this online digital reality branch out and it certainly is coming to the financial industry, which I inhabit. And it's, you know, realized a lot of value, a lot of opportunity. Uh, I've liked that space. So when I started looking at crypto, you know, maybe a decade back, I first came across some noises about it wasn't that interesting to me in the sense that at that time it was really very much about um, creating you know some kind of sovereign coin uh, or doing a financial system outside the financial system and why i was sympathetic to some of that coming out of 2007 i was kind of quite happy owning gold and that kind of did that for me um so you know fast forward a bit i could start seeing that something is going on you start seeing um the kind of ideas growing in the space, you're starting to see those ideas and the people it attracts. And I became curious about it in a private sense and, and just generally following um, kind of technology. Some of the people I really uh, valued their opinions and, and the work they were doing in technology started talking to me about it. So, you know, again, not being a technologist, I started kind of keeping an eye on what they had to share with me on it. For me, it basically is an innovation play. So for me, you know, it's interesting just in the last, whatever, let's say decade, we gone from it being a currency, which I think is actually a mislabeling. I don't think there's any of them besides you could argue stable coins and actually form any form of a currency. And then it was a payment system. And we're just talking Bitcoin here because that's kind of the main expression of the space or the main, the main um, noise uh, framework, I would say, in the space. Um, then it was realized that the system was not great to be a payment system. There was some uh, trying to innovate around the edges of it. But again, it was kind of was what it was, which is kind of like a digital gold, if you want, in, in the sense of how it's created. Um, so for me, not that interesting. I can see other assets that I found more interesting. But what did interest me was the innovation around the infrastructure in the place. So that's more down to the blockchain smart contract aspects of it. Um, I can see the applications of that still being figured out in some industries, but I do think in the financial industry, it has big applications. I actually think in governance, it has some applications around the blockchain and smart contracts. Um, I think around the financial industry, which is obviously a multi-trillion dollar industry, global in nature, certainly has some layers that could probably be uh, do a, a shake up and uh, decentralization of, of some of that. Again, back to our conversation about um, monopolies and getting back to true capitalism. I do actually think that there's some of, of those key inputs that are there, but it's very early. So again, when people are talking about crypto in the West, certainly in the media, it's all very much about Bitcoin this or meme that, or it's kind of like a speculative story. Whereas actually where I think it's much more interesting is if you look in the emerging markets, if you look around the younger generations, maybe in the West, uh, it is really more about an infrastructure for the next layer of maybe what financial services is. Mm. And I think that's very interesting. That I definitely want to invest into. Um, and that, again, for me, is that longer term horizon. So from an investment perspective, uh, I do not see Bitcoin as gold. You know, there's two very different things to me. I see the whole space as kind of a venture capital style thing that you may want to allocate to if you can handle the risk and you can manage that. If you can't, maybe find someone who understands the space and can manage risk effectively and get them to look after it for you. Uh, it's not a space you want to have 120% of your wealth in. <laughs> it's maybe a space where, depending on, on your age and, and your objectives, you want to have, you know, 2 3 4% of your wealth in. But again, I think there is a host of very interesting, innovative areas of the economy that you want to look at. Definitely think the digital application in the financial industry is one that you should be a part of if you're investing for the decade out. And the work we've been doing is really about how can an investor position themselves, uh, thinking about the longer term, trying to harness the broader concept as opposed to just Bitcoin um, or any one particular token, 
I'm accepting this is an early stage investment, so you want to try and capture a broad segment. Uh, you may want to try and have some ways of managing risk uh, actively, so you're not just sitting long only. Um, and you may want to be looking at ways that you can use some of the things within the infrastructure that may allow you to create yield if you are going to be holding these assets for multiple years. Um, and that's kind of what we come up with in terms of some of the work we've done in this space. Great. Um, Sunay, before I let you go, let's let's just do five quick minutes of basketball here. Um, <laughs> Great. And guys, if, if you're not interested in basketball, you can turn off right now. You might not want to be interested in basketball because the last time we addressed basketball on this podcast, Marco Papich and I were talking about how the Brooklyn Nets were going to be terrible and the James Harden trade was never going to work. And boy, do we, <laughs> I think we should stick to our day jobs, <laughs> apparently, in, in <laughs> geopolitics and investing. So what are your takeaways from the playoffs so far, man? Um, I'm enjoying it, number one. So again, I'm a huge NBA fan. My son plays basketball and, uh, you know, oh, and I, I just want to say right there, he says his son plays basketball. A lot of people say their sons play basketball. Sune's son plays basketball. He, he's a baller. <laughs> he, you send me some of his videos sometime. I'm, I'm waiting for him to, or is he, I don't know if he's going to make the US, but I feel like he's, he's got some game. Step by step, but he's getting there. He's, he's got the size now before he was undersized for a while, so he had to develop the skills. Um, so, yeah, definitely, fingers crossed, it would be a great thing for me. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that side of it. Right now, I'm just paying for all the basketball shoes and uh, right. and, and what have you. So, uh, NBA may be more interesting for the audience, though, at this stage. Um, so, my takeaways is it's really open, obviously. You can see, uh, which I actually enjoy, uh, very unpredictable. Um, I do, obviously, I'm a big Jokic fan. Um, so, you know, and this is again, I first came across Jokic when, so full disclosure, I ended up somehow becoming a New York Knicks fan, which is for, mm. for my sins, I suppose. Um, <laughs> mainly, mainly because we used to visit, we visit New York a lot and it was one of the first teams that we used to go and see, uh, with my son and that kind of became my team. He didn't really buy into it too much quite quickly when he figured out what basketball really should be about. but. Long story short, we went to watch one game. We were going to see Pasinkas, and I thought that was very exciting. And then this other dude turned up, some other big, uh, big European guy, and he basically destroyed uh, Pasinkas and the New York Knicks, and that was Jokic. So since then, kind of followed his his path, and I uh, just really enjoy the way he plays basketball and his general kind of outlook. I'm also big Luka Doncic fans, obviously, uh, from again European. Uh, perspective so i'm hoping they come through but i do think they're a bit hobbled um, on both sides there so we're gonna have to wait and see i really like the box um this year i think i'm a big jeru holiday fan um i really again my son plays point guard so i kind of try and uh, try and see if you can shape him into a mix of jeru holiday and donkage which would be kind of the the ultimate point uh, in my book um but yeah so i'm kind of looking at the box as maybe a sneaky Sneaky outsider, but you can't really get away from Brooklyn looking devastating on offense at least. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been distressing, but I I've come to think that I, <laughs> I I think Milwaukee is is the best hope we have for Brooklyn, not just winning the whole thing, because uh, it doesn't look like the Lakers are going to be healthy. And I mean, you talked about Jokic, but with Murray out, I just don't think they have the firepower they need. Uh, the Sixers, uh, I don't think you can trust the Sixers. So I, I think Giannis is going to have to hold the line, or or we're going to have to deal with a whole. <laughs> A whole off season of, of these Brooklyn guys talking about how great they are. It's going to be completely insufferable. Well, at least they don't have a lot of fans you're going to have to deal with unless they all jump <laughs> on the bandwagon now. So I'm not sure, you know, I, I've certainly been in New York. I don't see a lot of Brooklyn shirts and, um, you know, I'm not really sure how much of a parade they're going to be able to put up, but, um, you know, they may be able to pay some people to come out. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, actually. I mean, I lived in Brooklyn for a year, year and a half, um, and that was right when the, the Nets moved to Brooklyn. 
Um, and it was very weird. I mean, it was it was kind of obvious that they had no natural fans. You had the hipsters and the trendy folks that were, um, you know, gentrifying Brooklyn. They'd they'd go to the game at Barclays and go to Shake Shack afterwards or whatever. But there wasn't. Um, it, it's you juxtapose it with New York, which you know the Knicks obviously in the center of Manhattan, but just a rabid fan base uh, and a really yeah. diverse fan base. I, I guess maybe the Nets will get there eventually. I mean, stick around in Brooklyn for forty years, take the macro perspective. Maybe they'll be able. <laughs> to build that sort of thing, but it's def- it's not there right now, I don't think. So. No, we're going to have to see on that one. Uh, you know, it's a bit like the Clippers in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, mm. Again, they also seem to be staking out, uh, taking over the town, but again, from anyone I know in the area, that seems to be a very long shot. So we're going to have to wait and see. They're going to have to play great basketball for, as you say, four decades, and then maybe, maybe people will start swinging that way. Okay. Well, Sune, thank you so much. We're going to have you back on again soon, hopefully, and uh, talk to you later, man. Absolutely. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't signed up for our free newsletter at perchperspective.com, what are you waiting for? Please check out the website. Uh, We put out a nice weekly summation of what's going on in the world. You can also find more information on our website about the geopolitical consulting services that we offer clients. If you're unsure about whether you could use those consulting services, aren't sure whether you need help when it comes to geopolitical risk, why not err on the side of caution? Send us an email at info at perchperspectives.com. We're happy to set up an introductory phone call and talk about what we can do for you. You'd probably be surprised at the way geopolitics is affecting what you're doing, especially in today's multipolar and competitive world. Second of all, Um, If you need more perch in your life and you're not interested in a full-on consulting uh, arrangement, um, you should check out latampolitik.com. That's L-A-T-A-M-P-O-L-I-T-I-K.com. That's our collaboration uh, with Visual Politic, which is a YouTube channel that has millions of subscribers and viewers around the world. Um, Three times a week, it gives you an in-depth look at the geopolitics of Latin America which I think is a really underserved area when it comes to reporting and when it comes to analysis. Uh, I've been particularly proud of how at LATAM Politic, we've done some great work on what's been happening in Peru lately. Uh, Some major elections coming up in Peru. Uh, There was an attack by the Shining Path last week, um, a really grisly attack, which says disturbing things about Peru's future. And honestly, there is nobody either in the English language or, or in the Spanish language, I think, that is taking this approach towards Latin America geopolitics. So for the price of a cup of coffee, albeit a fancy cup of coffee every month or a beer a month, whatever you want to say it as, you know, five bucks a month gets you three of those geopolitical updates on Latin America week. Feel free to check it out or sign up for the free trial. Uh, Last but not least, um, if you like this podcast and you're not interested in all the other stuff, uh, there's one favor you can do for me, or really two favors, I guess I should say. First, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, leave us a review or leave us a rating. It's a really small thing. It takes five seconds out of your day, but it's immensely helpful to us. And if you really like the podcast, consider sharing us with your friend, uh, with your uncle, uh, with anybody else that you think might be interested in this content. Uh, The best support you can give us is a referral or a recommendation to somebody else who might be interested in the type of content that we're doing also helps us to keep doing this podcast, to keep it free, to make sure that it doesn't get clogged up with a bunch of ads. Uh, The more that we can grow that listener base uh, and funnel attention towards the podcast and to Perch, 
uh, the more content we can put out and the more we can make sure that that content stays free and ad and more importantly for me ad free thanks again for listening please spread the word about perch perspectives and the perch pod and we'll see you out there